So welcome everyone to part two of episode six. If you haven't seen the first episode, please check it out. We talked about Martin Luther King Jr. and Mahatma Gandhi and their attitudes towards violent and nonviolent protests. And in this episode, we'll be uh, expanding upon those those thoughts of the previous episodes and we'll be uh, discussing how the phenomena of what you see is all there is and the representativeness bias uh, is present in the protests we see today as well as social media. We'll be discussing the moral importance of voting as well as Taleb's theory of how minorities and not majorities cause change and why it is imperative that we don't remain silent. So this episode, you know, there's meant to be, it's become a two-parter because we went along on the last one, but this is like a lot of some of the meaty stuff, the some of the philosophers thinking behind the last one was quite historical, but this one's going to be more philosophical and some of the psychology as well about what's going on. And just like we said in that the preamble of the first episode, addressing those issues, trying to provide some opinions and thoughts about them that people might not have been seeing. And so moving from that the history of protest and looking at the par, um, past events to, to draw on and gain knowledge from, perhaps looking at some of the psychology and, and some of the trying to link in those ideas that we might be seeing now and how they're impacting us, especially some of the work of uh, Kahneman in Thinking Fast and Slow. And I wonder kind of what you found in your research about. Mm. So in reading Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow, I focused on the, the topic of, uh, on the chapter of the science of availability. Mm. And he discussed that when assigning a frequency of an event or a size of a category, um, we often report on the ease at which such events come to mind rather than answering the actual question at hand. And so there's many different things going on here. Um, we, we first of all replaced the question with something that we find easier to answer, yeah. um, which he refers to as substitution of the question. Yeah, which we spoke about in episode three about actually, but it comes up again. Mm. And uh, it's, it's, he also notes that it's, it's possible to avoid such a, a substitution of the question, but it's actually very, it's a, it's a real chore. It's very tiresome and it requires a lot of energy on, on our part. There's a, we have a set of intuitions that immediately provide data to us and thoughts and feelings when we first hear a question asked uh, or we first hear a topic mentioned and all this information is fired at us um, from from this kind of subconscious part mm. and there is a conscious effort required to then separate all this information out and decide what which which of it is actually useful which of these thoughts and initial feelings that i'm that i've experienced are, are actually true and uh, do they actually apply to what's been asked? So there are a lot of things that you have to do yourself, which is why it turns out to be a chore to avoid. And um, this kind of um, availability bias, as he calls it, can be fueled by previously or recently observed stimuli. Mm -hmm. um, 
like that of social media like we see in, in protests today. So uh, Kahneman refers to this as priming. So you your mind is primed with uh, a previous stimuli that goes on to affect your uh, to affect the very biases that present themselves to you later on when asked to define the size of of a category. Let's say, you know, how many violent protests have you seen, or was the mm. proportion of violent protest yeah. is in a peaceful protest, and they they can be influenced by the subtlest things like seeing a video on Instagram or seeing a video on on uh, on a news website or in an article yeah uh, these all subconsciously prime you and, and and that really is the the essence of the availability bias it's it's the experience of of fluent retrieval of instances trumped by the number retrieved so it doesn't matter how many you can recall it only matters how easily they are recalled yeah and and that plays a huge part in in how we perceive everything that goes on around us because if i said violent protest to you you can recall instances mm. of these videos very yeah. easily um but it might be that there weren't many that that occurred you know they were predominantly peaceful yeah. um so yeah this is the, yeah yeah a couple of stuff on the ease the, the experiment kahneman i think one of the ones kahneman does is they ask people two questions the questions are how well is your life? How well is your life going on like a scale of one to ten or whatever? And list the last five breakups you had or last five bad experiences. I can't remember. And they ask people these two questions. They have one group gets asked the how well is your life going first? And the other group gets asked the five bad experiences or five bad breakups uh, question first. And they found that the people that asked were asked how those five bad breakups, they had to think hard, make a list. And then, you know, two minutes later, they're asked, how's your life going? They think, what's happened in my life? The first, you know, in those first things that come to their mind will be all those bad experiences because they just struggle to recall them. But now they're in their recent memory. So they recall them very fluently. And people constantly, you know, to a significant level, when they were asked to list the bad experiences first, rated their lives experiences on average as a lot worse. Their current life, that how's your life going right now as a lot worse. And and then the people that, you know, they both both groups were able to complete that list of five bad experiences, but it shows that that just shows how the fluency of something comes to mind will impact how you form an opinion. And that's how advertising works. You know, how fluent if you see a name a couple of times for a company, then you think, oh, do you see you think, oh, I'm going to buy a mattress or oh, I've seen four ads for this mattress. I know that name. It comes to me fluently. There must be something good about it or there must be something true about it and the other phenomenon to bring into uh, the representative and the variability bias the availability bias sorry, is representativeness and that's all about asking how representative is my sample of the actual data so if you say the most ex simple example if you have an urn with uh, a ratio of one to four red to white balls and you draw a sample that has five red and five white balls you'll say if someone looks at a sample they will be able to say yeah it's 50 50 split or if there's an equal chance of drawing red and white but then you have to when you have access to the greater data set you then ask how representative is this of my actual set and a 50 50 is not representative of the actual uh 20 to 
80% split there is in drawing out a red or a white ball. And I think social media, and we see this talk about social media bubbles in inverted commas, and it's all about what videos are being shared. Um, so it can be that people, you know, and the amount of people that are protesting right now, there will be people acting violently, and there'll be police acting violently, and there'll be police acting well, and there'll be people acting well and peacefully in those four categories. And you, the social media is designed to, to generate clicks and to generate rage and, and out anger and get people, because Facebook and Twitter realized that when people get angry, that's how you get to spend the most time on Twitter and Facebook. And that's how you get to look at the most ads. That's your generous revenue. So if you can create these bubbles that, you know, they, they influence your opinion, because if you have a bubble that just shows you people sharing videos of, for the sake of argument, violent protests, now all of a sudden you think these protests are majority violent. And the same can happen with nonviolent protests. And that is why you have to have the awareness and say, okay, what is my availability bias? What is the data I'm drawing off? And how representative is this data of the full thing? If you've only seen three videos, firstly, law of small numbers, there's going to be high variance. You might see three violent protests. And then also, is that true of the whole population? You need to look at the broader data before you form the intuitive opinion. Mm, definitely. And in the case of, of media, whether it be social media or whether it be uh, news websites, like you said, they're, they're heavily image driven. You know, anything with, with fire, anything with... Um, kind of mass destruction or kind of harm is what drives people to be mm. to click on them yeah. and um, this kind of hostility right it sells it sells very well and mm. you can get a lot of clicks people become very interested that's why you get very yeah. charged um, large captions above these images as yeah. well right that's the way the media operates and so naturally what they want to report on to get these clicks is the more violent side, yeah. the more controversial side. And so that's what crops up a lot more in media. They're never going to report on peaceful protests when they could report on something yeah. with a little bit more controversy and that provides a little bit more um, clicks. Yeah. Like you said, that narrative, you could see two photos, one of a street of people protesting with maybe, you know, you, can't count them but thousands of people on a street all walking down it protesting having their voices heard but not acting violently and then down you scroll down the article and there's a photo of someone throwing a brick through a shop window and if you consider the large data set there there's thousands of people protesting peacefully and one person acting violently and maybe i'm exaggerating a point to prove point here but in your mind you now have two ideas there are peaceful protesters and there are violent protesters and you won't intuitively it's not it's when people act intuitively, it's not a failing, it's just the brain taking shortcuts. You won't act, you might think, oh, it's a 50 50 split of violence and nonviolent protests, or you might overrate the amount of nonviolent people because your brain just says, how many photos have I seen? Not how many people have I seen acting in this manner? It just makes the easy assumption. Mm -hmm. And that's not necessarily wrong. It's all about having an awareness of the bias and saying to yourself, haha, is this a well thought out? Is this just an intuition, or do I have evidence to back this up? Mm, mm. Definitely. But, you know, all, all of these ideas, they lend themselves to the success of protests. We discussed with uh, Martin Luther King Jr. and Mahatma Gandhi, the success in their protests derived from the media presence um, that 
they kind of conjured up in themselves. And this relates directly to the two points that Kahneman raised for um, the signs of availability, which is the number of instances that you observe and the ease of retrieval of those instances. And if you think about a protest or the protest that we're seeing uh, today and the protest in history as well, if you have a large number of instances, there's more to draw from. And if they're happening all over the world, whether they be non-violent or violent or whatever's happening, there's an ease of retrieval there. They're at the forefront of your mind. And this is why protests are so successful in, in communicating a message and communicating an idea and in awakening people from their their previous ignorances mm -hmm. and slumber is that actually in our minds, in our intuitive minds, it is so easy for us to a recall uh, because there are more instances and because they're at the forefront. Mm. You know, there's more of them and they're easier to recall. Yeah. And you raise a good point that gets us back to the original idea that in some ways this debate there has been a debate that has been skewed towards whether the protest should be violent or non-violent. Um, but you're missing the point that the great thing is there's protest in the first place because that's how you get the message across and that is the, the value of the protest. That is the value of creating that civil disobedience, getting attention in the media, creating a, you know, not creating a story, but giving attention to a story. Um, you know, creating the story of a protest and people see why you're protesting for. Mm. So that is the the great value of, of protesting definitely so they get spun in the media which is perhaps not so great mm. but it is a self-fulfilling prophecy in that you know if if you have a very small protest it attracts media coverage and then more people read the media coverage mm. and they might get behind the movement which causes a larger protest yeah. and then the media covers the larger protest and more people are made aware mm. of it and more people might then form an opinion and then the media covers their opinion and yeah. and more people are brought into this conversation. They're brought into the limelight and they realize what's going on. And, and it lends itself all the way from people protesting in the streets of America to myself and yourself filming a podcast mm. about it. This is the power of, of protests and mm. that media coverage, which allows that protest to reach the far corners of the earth very quickly yeah. and bring that conversation forward and that's why they're so powerful and why yeah. they're still used today so yeah it has that the media can have its pitfalls but it certainly does have its benefits in spreading messages mm. and getting us interested in things mm, definitely to to go from protesting which has been that that's the instant reaction that's the instant change you can make um to then the the way to bring about those long-term changes inside a system which is uh, a lot of time through voting and i looked at a bit of the stuff in uh, path it wrote in reasons and persons we spoke about that before uh, but he has a list of mistakes in moral mathematics and these actually come into play because he discusses voting because it is a strange form of prisoner's dilemma but it is very poignant and and this philosophy he gives can be applied to many things to justify our actions um, it comes in subchapter 27. He talks about ignoring small chances. It's a mistake of moral mathematics. And basically what it boils down to is people will uh, ignore or not pay heed to uh, an altruistic act or an act that has a very low percentage of occurring, but incredibly high benefit if it does occur. Because we consider, can, can consider the expected benefit of an outcome if it could be so easily reduced to numbers, which it can't, but hypothetically, we can get this rough idea as that idea of the percentage of it happening times 
this numerized value given to benefit uh, for the people that it occurs to. And um, Parfit fittingly gives the idea of someone voting in America. And he says, he says the hypothetical with the idea of there's a superior and an inferior candidate to vote for. And you might say, well, no, each candidate will have its benefits and its weaknesses. And Parfit's all about, he's a consequentialist, so he looks at bringing around the most happiness to the most people. So the superior candidate for the sake of this hypothetical might be someone who is looking to maybe uh, to share, distribute wealth or try and reduce inequality because that more people that have lower incomes than have higher incomes. So someone that can bring up the baseline will do, say, 90% of the population. They will benefit and 10% will suffer um, in terms of income. So the inferior benefits the rich minority and the superior benefits the perhaps slightly poorer or um, lacking uh, majority. And that's how you get the superior candidate. So if the superior candidate was voted in, it would bring about a net benefit because there are more people that we benefited than harmed. Um, and that is our benefit for the superior candidate getting in. And then the, the chance, the percentage is all about, does my vote count? So people think about, does my vote have a difference, especially voting in a state that or a constituency that always votes one way um, and then decide not to vote because it's not worth it. And Parfit gives the incredibly low value of, say there's a one in a million chance of you making a difference to the outcome, because you might just happen that if everyone had a thought through, you might be that one vote that swings it to the majority. And you can calculate the, the average net benefit given to each citizen times the number of citizens you benefit. So in America, this could be 200 million uh, divided by that one in a million chance or divided by a million to give you that chance of what your net expected outcome is. And this number is actually incredibly high. You might not bring it about, but if you do, if your vote is the one that counts, it brings about great benefits. And these benefits only come around when you win, obviously, so you have to vote. Um, and Parfit says, if you look at this action of voting and the only cost it has to you is going to the polling booth and ticking your name on a box and signing up um, and maintaining your right to vote. But that cost might seem big, but compared to the benefit that you might bring about, the expected benefit, you still make a massive positive. And that is why we have a duty to, or that is the importance of going out to vote. And I think it's quite interesting, people thought of ignoring the, the base rates, ignoring the small chances in maths. Mm. And you know, we spoke on the pa pandemic statistics. It's the same, people ignore the chance of a pandemic that had a great impact. Yeah. These events that are in the, in the tales, as we say. Mm. So am I right to say that that his attitude to voting is very much there's way more to be gained than there is to be lost. Yeah. There's, okay. And that's all about the expected benefit. So there's, you know, a, an incredibly high chance that your vote has no difference and then you lose. But if you look at the expected benefit, that one in a million times you come good and it doesn't apply for, every, you know, you ha have to have a lot of people voting for this to matter. But that one in a million times you come good, you bring about such a great change that it was worth any costs incurred to you right. um, and those costs would be very it, it has to be because the costs are also very minimal um, it can be you know say you had to drive 100 miles to your nearest polling booth and that cost you 40 pounds in petrol every time you wanted to vote and then all of a sudden you're incurring quite a great cost and maybe you could spend this money on something better but for most people voting is 
relatively easy to do. And that's why we have Puff says we have that duty to vote and we have we can understand that even though our vote might not matter, if it does, the difference it can bring about is could be incredibly important. There's another mistake in moral mathematics. Puff talks about the the smallest, the imperceptible changes um, that make a defect where you he says it's a very weird hypothetical. Hmm. But imagine you have a thousand people who are they're dying of thirst in the desert. If they drink a pint of water, they will be replenished. And then there's a thousand other people in the village nearby, all with one pint of water in their hand that they don't need. Or they could drink, but they have a, enough supply. Someone brings in a wagon to that village and says, if you pour in your pint, then I will bring all the water and distribute it equally between everyone dying of thirst. Um, so if everyone pours in their pint, you will have a thousand pint glasses and enough for all the people outside to be saved. But if you pour in your pint, all you do is give each person a thousandth of a pint, which is not even a millimeter, milliliter of water. And, you, and then you might say, well, that's imperceptible. What, what difference does it make if I put in one, like half a milliliter of water to each person or I just don't do anything? And that's another example of Yes, you could give the attitude, but if everyone had the attitude, these people starve. Whereas everyone takes the attitude, I will pour my glass into the um, into that pint, into the big water pot. Then everyone gets the pint. And I recognise, or I realise that an analogy maybe between a protest that if no one shows up, you know, you might say, what does one voice matter in a protest? Mm. What does one voice matter about you know remaining silent? Or if, if if everyone had the attitude and if no one showed up, then the protest would have a value. But you might just be that you know person that tips over the edge where oh there's fifty thousand people today rather than a smaller number. Mm. Yeah, it, it it forms that prisoner's dilemma that we've we've talked about previously, mm. doesn't it? Um, but I, what I would mention is with the prisoner's dilemma, it's one of the conditions is that there's a very clear cut difference between a loss and a gain, a mm. uh, success and a failure. Mm. Whereas with this, with protests and with your village example, there's not always a a clear definition of a success and a clear definition of a loss. Yeah. And I'd say that with something like a protest, like you say, if if everyone had the attitude of, well, I'm just one voice and my voice doesn't count, mm. then like you said, the protest wouldn't gather and and it wouldn't have that that mm. kind of momentum that it does. But equally, there's more success in in what comes about because of that protest yes the protest in itself allows for people's voices to be heard yeah. but that those voices then catalyze further change in society which yeah. has knock-on effects and it continues to do throughout the next few generations mm. like we mentioned earlier with um with the way that you know all the the bigoted comments were mentioned mm. um in response to the civil rights protests in america if it wasn't for those, we wouldn't have the change in in, in outlook that we we have today. Yeah. And actually, that not only does your voice matter in a protest now, but it will come to matter more and more in the future. And it's hard to assign a mathematical value to that. It's kind of like, you know, what's worth more, £100 today or £100 next month, if mm. I were to give it to you next month. £100 today is worth more yeah, because you can have it. Yeah. But it's the same hundred pounds. But mm. my point here is that there's different ways of of 
providing value yeah to the outcome of something and it's it's a lot more complex than than uh than just a prisoner's dilemma of success and failure what we see here is is something that goes on to shape history and, and that will always be a success in my opinion yeah so that's kind of Parfit's take on the you know he has, he has a very logical approach to his maths and then someone who just deals with the real world we've talked about him before uh Nassim Nicola Taleb and he talks about why the minority and not the majority make difference and it's not in all cases but the mo it's all to do with things called uh, a renormalization group and I'll give you an example to start us off and then you know we'll look at maybe why that is so if you go and buy most uh, food or drinks uh, available in UK supermarkets or in the case the US you'll find that they are kosher or halal prepared and so for kosher drinks in, in the US it's incredibly weird because Jews only make up about 0.3% of the population and yet all drinks fizzy drinks tend to be kosher um, and you wonder why that is and, and it all comes down to the fact that someone who is kosher will never eat non-kosher food but someone who is non-kosher can eat kosher food and it's no difference to them and because of this fact and for drinks producers they realize there's no difference in price between creating a kosher drink or a non-kosher drink or very little difference we are able to have this idea of a renormalization group where you have a, a stubborn minority and um and then the majority who are titled the flexible majority and the way this kind of builds up is you get these renormalization groups and i'll put a diagram of it on the on the instagram uh, at the musings podcast and so if you imagine say you have a uh, a barbecue or you have someone who becomes um they only want to eat organic food and the price difference between organic and non-organic food isn't that great most of the price of food is between storage and shipping so non-organic and organic isn't that great difference Someone reads a blog online in a family and wants to eat organic food. Now, they only want to eat organic, but the rest of the family will eat either. They don't care. So the family starts buying organic food. And all of a sudden, that minority has changed that whole family. And then the family goes to a barbecue in the neighborhood and they tell the person, oh, we only eat organic food. And everyone else doesn't mind. Um, but that family only eat organic. So then in the neighborhood only buys organic. And then all of a sudden the supermarket realizes, oh, we're only getting demand for organic food and it's cheaper to only stock organic food. So then they stock organic food. And from this one small person, you get these it kind of builds up in like concentric circles of this renormalization that occurs where the inflexible, the flexible don't mind changing. And it's why that we have that deal with the kosher food or uh, in fact, I read another fact in that Taleb book, 70% of New Zealand's lamb imports to the UK are halal when the Muslim population in the UK is a lot less. Um, and it's just because people don't mind what meat they eat. Most people don't mind what meat they eat. So you allow the minority to, to cause a change. I, I read this guy, I knew it might link in. And mm. I tried to find the link, you know, we like to find these links. Um, and then there's a, um, you Taleb says that the reason that extremist parties come to power is in, in politics, we get these two inflexible groups on the very extremes, the far left and the far right. To simplify it, those will be the two extreme voters and or an extreme voter will never vote centrist, but a centrist voter might vote extreme. Mm. And that's how you have these situations where mm. these fascist or 
strongly socialist parties come into power. And I thought, well, that still doesn't link into what's going on today, because there are a lot of people who will refuse to change their opinions or will be very stubborn in not wanting to bring about change. And there are also people um, you know, who want to bring about change and being very active. And I realized this, that actually what we need is the reverse. So for Taleb's thing to work, you need a flexible majority and you need the minority to be about two to three percent of the population before it can start to have an impact. Because if it's smaller than that, there's no point even catering to it in the first place. Mm. And this is where it comes in that this is, I guess, where that saying of being silent is not an option. Because if you are silent, you are part of the flexible majority. And you allow yourself to go either way. Whereas what we need, I suppose, is for people to be inflexible in that majority and to have the majority that forces opinion towards a you know a less prejudiced society, a better society, and to be to be firm in voicing our opinions. Because um, say with the kosher drinks, if the entire US population all of a sudden decided they didn't want to drink kosher, they only want to drink non-kosher drinks for some bizarre reason, then they would change back because that 90% would have a strong enough voice. Um, and I guess that's why they say remaining silent is not an option because you need to be that, you can't be the flexible majority. If you allow yourself to be the flexible majority, then you allow you know, the minority to push through. And especially if the minority is guarding the status quo, then it's very hard to bring about change. Interesting. So you say that you need the opposite of what yeah. Taleb advocates in this instance. Taleb points out this phenomena and mm. he advocates people to, he says to... this is one way minorities can bring about change. Right. So this can be a good thing. But I couldn't find the link to the situation and now I think I realise that it's um, what you need to do is this is a situation where you need to be mm. Well, I think with the way you, you said it about initially, it, it can appear quite clear cut. You know, majority has this view and minority has this view. And often they're not mutually, they're mutually exclusive yeah. and, and they conflict with each other. There's a conflict of interest between them and thus you wouldn't be able to, to compromise in any way. Yeah. Um, whereas what we see today is that actually perhaps we're not aware of our, our inflexibility, of our rigidity. Yeah. in our views and actually it's only through education it's only through b listening to others and giving others yeah. a platform that we become aware of of our ignorances mm. and our rigidity as a society yeah. and thus it it's not really um you know we're, we're not standing here a lot of a, a lot of people don't stand there in their rigidity and say this is how i am i'm not changing yeah it's actually because they didn't realize in the first place and so whether you're a flexible or inflexible majority, I think actually having an idea change and ripple through you. So Taleb actually, you know, he brings about this phenomenon and he's, he definitely sees it has its flaws. And the, the reason it has its flaws is because it's all about boundaries in terms of free speech and democracy. If you have a society that's tolerable and there's an intolerable minority, by the minority rule, they will eventually bring about change that might be for the worst because they will just be so stubborn that eventually people if most people don't care and then they'll be able and or will swing either way the into, the that intolerable minority that will not change that will not have a debate that will not have a discussion eventually they will be the ones that make the decisions because other people just allow themselves to be renormalized so taleb asks the question when do we 
match the intolerable minority with intolerability? When do we be intolerable to those who are intolerable? Intolerable. Mm, I guess when it's right to do so. (laughs) You know, with something like like what we see today, there's a there's a clear right and wrong. Mm. You know, I think we can agree on that. There's there are people who are in the wrong. Yeah. And there are people who fight to be in the right. Yeah. And it makes sense to to be intolerable intolerable towards those who are intolerable mm. because you're not going to settle for anything less than what is right. Yeah. Um but in the context that Taleb reports on it, it, it seems that he focuses very much on a on a market viewpoint, you know, on something like a marketplace or in a business setting and and what we're dealing with is is not products to sell, for instance, mm-hmm. like your kosher drink. It's not tick boxes, but it's it's something uh, more subtle, more human than yeah. that. Well, how about so in in the business world, as the world becomes more and more connected, we see that English has risen to the language that is you know dominant in the business world, and that is an example of the minority rule in terms of English people aren't very good at speaking foreign languages but foreigners learn English. And that means that if you're in a business world between a, you know, in Berlin and you're meeting between the French, the Germans and the English, the easiest, you know, the lowest common denominator is for you all to go for English and start learning English. Mm-hmm. And then that's how English kind of spreads is that language of business because everyone can just join in and, and it renormalizes and, and has that minority change. I, I mean... It's true, but I, I, I counter that by saying that there you disregard the kind of cultural and historical context that set that in place. You know, English was the language used uh, and adopted by many of these countries due to uh, the colonialization of the British throughout the world, you know, where they established colonies in mm-hmm. various different countries. If those colonies sought to do business, they had no other choice but to adopt English and to converse with English merchants because the English merchants were the inflexible ones. They yeah. were the ones who wouldn't change. Yeah. And that actually um it's only because of such a such a vast empire that that many businessmen and, and merchants came to speak English. And yeah. That's why you can see in places like Hong Kong they they discourse in English as well, where it doesn't really make sense to do so. There are far better uh, languages are communicating and yeah. languages that express the art of business in in a more um, uh, in a more tactical way than yeah. English. You know, English is, can be quite primitive at times. And mm. so again, I, th- I I definitely think there's more to it than just uh, what we see. So that's been a discussion of uh, Daniel Kahneman and thinking fast and slow with his ideas of the availability bias and the representativeness bias and how it affects our view of, of protests and of social media as well. And we've also discussed the moral importance in voting and Taleb's theory of minorities versus majorities in causing change. So as always, you can find links to anything we discussed in the description. Take the time to educate yourself on them and, and find further reading. Um, follow us on Instagram at the Musings Podcast. No capitals, no spaces. We'll have updates and behind the scene inf- um, extra. You know, we'll show some diagrams of the stuff we discussed today. Some extra photos, provide the background knowledge, and 
you might want to get on there early because there's a surprise episode 10 that might involve Instagram. Um, but apart from that, stay safe, stay curious. Mm-hmm.